The Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, will come to order. Uh, we apologize to all involved uh, that we're a little late in starting. We have a vote going on on the floor of the United States Senate. Um, I, I just voted, and uh, we may have another one during the course of this hearing, and we'll just have to juggle things uh, to keep things going. Um, I want to thank my uh, colleague uh, in this hearing, my Republican colleague, Senator Rounds, that we also served together as the, the chairman and the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health Policy, and I want to thank him for his uh, leadership. Uh, I'm going to welcome all seven of our nominees uh, here. Um, we have two panels. Uh, the first panel will include Ambassador Patricia Mahoney uh, to be ambassador to the Central African Republic, uh, Ambassador Peter Vrooman uh, to be the ambassador to the Republic of Mozambique, uh, Mr. Peter Haas uh, to be ambassador to the Republic of Bangladesh, and Ms. Julie Chung to be ambassador to the Republic of Sri Lanka. Our second panel uh, will consist of Mr. Brian Shukan uh, to be our ambassador to the Republic of Benin, uh, and Ms. Elizabeth Fitzsimmons uh, to be ambassador to the Togolese Republic, and Ambassador David Gilmore uh, to be our ambassador to the Republic of Equatorial Guinea. Uh, congratulations to all of you on your nominations. Uh, I've had the chance to meet with some of you uh, in the past uh, to connect with some of you uh, via Zoom uh, and to review uh, the, the backgrounds of, of everybody here. Uh, and I, I just want to thank all of you for your uh, service to the United States uh, as Foreign Service uh, officers. Uh, as some of you may know, I come from a, a Foreign Service family, and I'm really grateful to all of you and your families uh, for serving our country. Uh, for those of you who have been ambassadors, you know this, and for all of you who have already served in the Foreign Service, you know uh, that serving as an ambassador um, overseas as the representative of the President of the United States um, is a very important responsibility, and it will be your uh, task to coordinate all sort of U.S. policy um, and be the go-between between the United States government uh, and the government's uh, in the countries uh, where you will be assigned, um, assuming uh, all are confirmed. Uh, so I just want to thank all of you. Uh, you have the responsibility of bringing together all the sort of tools um, of American diplomacy uh, and influence um, from the, the military to developmental tools and, of course, diplomatic tools and others uh, to uh, both improve, strengthen um, our relations with the countries in which uh, you will represent the United States uh, to make clear uh, to those countries um, U.S. interests. Um, and importantly, as President Biden has really worked to emphasize, um, support the principles of democracy, the rule of law, and human rights. Um, that's, of course, a challenge um, around the world, uh, especially as many of our adversaries continue to export uh, their models of authoritarianism. Uh, using all the tools at their disposal. So um, we are at a challenging moment, but I know all of you are up to the challenge. Um, and so I don't, I'm pleased to see Mike, I, uh, Senator Rounds, I, I mentioned our partnership uh, earlier. Uh, it's great to see you. Thank you for your leadership um, uh, on range of foreign policy issues. 
Uh, and with that, let me turn it over to my colleague, Senator Rounds. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I, I most certainly appreciate that. And I look, and, and I do appreciate the working relationship that we have. Uh, I know we voted at exactly the same time. It just took me a little longer to get back to my office because I got farther to go. But uh, first of all, thank you, and, and good afternoon to all of you. Um, as career diplomats, I, I agree with Senator Van Holland. Um, much of your lives and those of your families have been spent far from home. Uh, you've made great sacrifices in the service to your country. Thank you and your families for your lifetimes of service and your work, which is critical in maintaining and advancing America's influence throughout the world. Ambassador Mahoney, uh, thank you for your service as U.S. Ambassador to Benin and for your eagerness to continue to serve in the Central African Republic. Uh, Car remains beset by violence and ongoing humanitarian crisis. Russia's malign influence in the country uh, poses additional concerns. We need to take a hard look at our policy toward CAR and how we can be proactively engaged. So you have your work cut out for you. The U.S. Embassy in the Central African Republic is one of the most difficult environments in which to live and work in this entire world. I appreciate your willingness to serve there. Uh, ambassador Vrooman, thank you for your service as an ambassador to Rwanda and your long history of service in Africa and the Middle East. I am happy to see an experienced ambassador like you as the nominee for U.S. Ambassador to Mozambique. The violent extremist insurgency in the northern province of Cabo Delgado has threatened and delayed the construction of a large-scale onshore LNG processing complex. The threats posed by Mozambique's northern insurgency have prompted deployments of military assistance forces from other African countries and security cooperation and military training from the U.S. and European governments. I look forward to hearing how you plan to further the U.S.-Mozambique relationship in the face of these significant challenges. Uh, Mr. Haas, Bangladesh, like many places, is facing the rise of Islamist militancy. A relatively poor nation with 160 million uh, people living in a land area the size of Iowa, it is one of the most densely populated countries on Earth. Nevertheless, Bangladesh has opened its borders to nearly 1 million Rohingya fleeing persecution in neighboring uh, Burma and is working with the international community to support the humanitarian response. Additionally, ties between Bangladesh and China have recently significantly improved. In short, if confirmed as U.S. Ambassador to Bangladesh, you will head to a post at a time when Bangladesh is of increasing bilateral and global importance. Uh, Ms. Chung, bilateral relations between the United States and Sri Lanka are facing critical challenges. As acting Assistant Secretary for the Western Hemisphere Affairs, you helped focus our Western Hemisphere efforts on countering malign Chinese influence in the region. This will be useful in Colombo. Attempts to renegotiate a status, forces, status of forces agreement faced unexpected opposition while the Millennium Challenge Corporation discontinued a $480 million compact aimed at reducing poverty after a Sri Lankan special committee recommended its rejection. Some say that pressuring Colombo on human rights could push it closer to China, which is partnering on a number of big ticket, big ticket infrastructure projects in the country. I am delighted to meet you all today, and I look forward to your comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Rounds. And uh, in my earlier comments, um, 
I indicated uh, the countries to which each of you has been nominated uh, as our ambassador. Now I'm going to provide a little bit more background uh, for on each of you. Um, and I think uh, all of our colleagues um, will should be impressed with the depth of your experience uh, and expertise. Um, beginning with Ambassador uh, Patricia Mahoney, uh, who's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, who currently serves as the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Benin. Previously, she served as Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary in the State Department's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs and as Office Director in the Office of Mainland Southeast Asia. Her previous experience also includes posts as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Uganda, Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Nepal, and Deputy uh, for, excuse me, Director for South Asia at the National Security Council. Uh, Ambassador Mahoney is the recipient of multiple State Department awards, um, and she earned her A.B. cum laude from Harvard College, her M.A. from the University of Hawaii, and her M.S. from the National War College. Welcome. Uh, Ambassador uh, Peter Ruman uh, is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service uh, and has been ambassador to the Republic of Rwanda since 2018. Uh, he previously served as Charge d'Affaires and Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Ethiopia. Uh, he's a former director for Iraq on the National Security Council staff and was Deputy Political Counselor at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in New York. Ambassador Vrooman also, has also served as the spokesperson at the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi as a senior advisor for Northern Iraq at our embassy in Baghdad and as deputy political counselor at the U.S. Embassy in, uh, in Israel. He is the recipient of 20 State Department awards uh, and earned his A.B. from Harvard College and his M.S. from the National Defense University's Industrial College of the Armed Forces. Welcome to you. Uh, Mr. Peter Haas uh, is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as both Acting Assistant Secretary of State and Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic and Business Affairs. Mr. Haas has previously served as a Senior Advisor and Deputy Assistant Secretary for Trade Policy and Negotiations for the State Department. Over his career, he has served in positions across five geographic bureaus of the State Department including Consul General at the Consul General, uh, U.S. Consulate in Mumbai. He is the recipient of multiple State Department Performance Awards, including the James Clement Dunn Award for Excellence and the Cordell Hull Award for Economic Achievement by Senior Officers. Mr. Haas received his B.A. from Illinois Wesleyan University and holds advanced degrees from the London School of Economics, where he studied as a Marshall Scholar. Welcome to you. Ms. Julie Chung. Uh, is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and most recently served as the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs at the State Department. She's held positions in both Baghdad and Bogota, and her other previous assignments include positions as the Director and Acting, Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Japan in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. As, Chief, as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Cambodia, and economic counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Thailand. Ms. Chung is a Pickering Fellow and has received numerous State Department awards, including the Secretary's Distinguished Honor Award. 
She earned her BA from the University of California, San Diego, and her MA from Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Um, and on a note of personal privilege, um, I mentioned I was uh, a member of a foreign service family. Uh, the last overseas post my father held was uh, ambassador to Sri Lanka uh, and the Maldives. And so I did tell Miss Chung when I had a chance to talk to her uh, how much um, I really enjoyed uh, getting to know the people of Sri Lanka. And uh, it's a wonderful post, as are the others, and grateful to her and all of you for your service. So with that, um, let me uh, turn it over. We're going to go in the order uh, that I introduced all of you and begin with Ambassador Mahoney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Rounds, and members of the committee. I feel privileged and grateful to appear before you today. I thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have placed in me as their nominee for ambassador to the Central African Republic. During my time serving in the Department of State, I've worked to advance the United States diplomatic and policy objectives as Deputy Chief of Mission for our embassies in Uganda and Nepal, Director of South Asia for the National Security Council, and currently as the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Benin. Throughout the course of my career, I felt honored to serve the American people and to represent our nation in its democratic values. I also appreciate the tremendous responsibility that embassy leadership has to safeguard the safety and welfare of American citizens and embassy staff abroad. I recognize that if confirmed, I will be assuming leadership of an embassy in a country in which the United States has suspended operations three times and carried out numerous evacuations. If confirmed, my focus will remain on the well-being and security of our citizens and our embassy staff in the Central African Republic. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, the Central African Republic is a fragile country, still scarred by its horrific civil war in 2013, and still battling the triple menaces of extreme poverty, armed violence, and instability. More than a quarter of the, of the country's population has been displaced over the past decade, and more than half of the country re relies on humanitarian, humanitarian assistance for their health and basic needs. Additionally, inner and intra-communal violence continues over transhumans issues and control of natural resources, deepening mistrust between communities. The immediate neighborhood just outside its borders consists of six African nations, all working through varying degrees of insecurity and governance challenges. Of profound concern is the fact that we have seen the deleterious impact of Russian-supported mercenaries from the Wagner Group on the safety and security of many of the people's in the country, which further erodes prospects for regional security and stability. President Twadera has critical choices to make in the near term regarding with whom he chooses to partner. This choice will affect the United States and allies' ability to stand with his government. At this juncture, our continued engagement and concert with allies and like-minded partners is vital to ensure that President Twadera makes the right choice. If confirmed, I will seek to continue the leadership that our current Ambassador Tamlin has demonstrated to show us a good faith and reliable friend to the people of the Central African Republic that promotes reconciliation, good governance, and a reinvigorated 2019 peace agreement as the best path forward. If confirmed, I will do my utmost to represent that best choice that we offer. 
both for the good of the people of the Central African Republic, but also for our own humanitarian and strategic interests in the region as well. I think it's important we remain engaged in the Central African Republic to provide life-saving humanitarian assistance to its at-risk population, to bolster efforts toward an inclusive and legitimate national dialogue, to encourage fidelity to the 2019 peace agreement, to reinforce peace building and conflict mitigation efforts, and to continue to support as we have since 2014, the vital role played by the United Nations multidimensional integrated stabilization mission known as MINUSCA, one of the largest and most challenging UN peacekeeping missions in the world. If confirmed, I'll work with President Toidera, the government of the Central African Republic and our partners to strengthen democratic institutions, advance the rule of law, improve access to justice, enable effective delivery of humanitarian assistance and increase transparency in the mining sector. I will strive to promote respect for human rights, develop responsible security alternatives to malign Russian supported mercenaries, urge further progress on combating human trafficking and encourage accountability at all levels of the government. My goal is to work with the Central African Republic government and our partners to help the country begin the transition from humanitarian assistance to sustainable development. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Rounds, members of the committee, I recognize that if confirmed, I'll be assuming leadership of an embassy in a country that's contending with an array of threats to its integrity, its security, and its ability to satisfy even the most basic needs of its population. The task is enormous, the challenges complex and exigent, and the need immense. I'm grateful for your advice and counsel in this undertaking. I want to reiterate my thanks for giving me the opportunity to provide this testimony, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Mahoney. Uh, next, we'll turn to Ambassador Ruman. Mr. Ambassador. Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Rounds, and members of the committee, it's a great privilege and honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to serve as the next ambassador to the Republic of Mozambique. I thank the President and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me, and I'm also grateful for this Distinguished Committee's consideration. I want to recognize my wife, Jeanette Iris, for her partnership and passion, and for the resilience and curiosity of my children, Zara and Hendrik, who are in school in Rwanda this week and my mother, Sally, for coming to visit, teaching English, and mentoring students wherever the Foreign Service leads me. Finally, I would like to thank my extended family and friends who always lay out their welcome mats when I and we are in the United States. 30 years ago, I began my Foreign Service career on the Indian Ocean side of Africa in Djibouti, and I'm now Chief of Mission in, Mo in Rwanda. I have served in Somalia and Ethiopia as well and believe that my experience on the continent has provided me with a unique understanding of some of the challenges facing Mozambique, including those related to the pandemic, climate change, terrorism, and post-conflict stabilization. If confirmed, I will further strengthen ties between the United States and Mozambique by seizing opportunities to combat infectious disease, promote global health security, sustain wildlife and maritime conservation efforts, and deepen bilateral ties that foster job creation in both our countries. I also remain committed to promoting respect for human rights and advocating for the inclusion of people with disabilities throughout our policies and programs. Mozambique remains a strategic and important par partner on the African continent. The government of Mozambique, together with regional forces and allies, are fighting ISIS Mozambique, which has caused violence that has claimed thousands of casualties and internally displaced 
more than 700,000 people in the north since 2017. This region is home to massive natural gas reserves that could lead to a once-in-a-generation economic transformation for the country and the continent, provided there is responsible public financial management, community involvement in local decision-making, and transparency in the development of a sovereign wealth fund that allows revenue from natural resources to benefit all Mozambicans. If confirmed, I will continue our holistic approach to countering violent extremism and terrorism. The United States is committed to support the Mozambican government in four ways, providing security assistance, strategic communication, socioeconomic and uh, humanitarian assistance, and diplomatic engagement. And together, we are rebuilding vocational schools, promoting dialogue and exchanges with emerging leaders and marginalized communities, and providing specialized counterterrorism uh, training. If confirmed, I will partner diligently with the Mozambican government and its people to address the underlying drivers of extremism and terrorism by protecting the civilian population, addressing their development requirements, and upholding the core values of human rights, good governance, and democratic participation. Mozambique also confronts the devastating impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has strained its healthcare system and disrupted economic growth. Significantly, the U.S. Health Partnership combating HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria helped Mozambique to respond quickly and effectively to COVID-19. We join international partners not only to end the pandemic, but to build back better for global health security through more than $50 million in COVID assistance to Mozambique, including more than 600,000 U.S. provided vaccines. Finally, if confirmed, I will dedicate myself to building on the extraordinary progress that Ambassador Hearn and the U.S. Embassy have made in deepening our bilateral relations and supporting Mozambique's efforts to provide for the welfare of its citizens. It would be a tremendous honor for me to serve as Chief of Mission in Maputo, working at the new chancery that overlooks the same Indian Ocean where I began my Foreign Service career three, three decades ago. Our embassy will be a forum for clear-eyed discussions that contribute to concrete actions that advance our shared interests in democracy, security, prosperity, and friendships. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity to be, appear before you today. I would be honored to respond to any questions. Uh, thank you, uh, Ambassador Bruman. Uh, next, we'll hear from Mr. Haas. Mr. Haas. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and Ranking Member Rounds and members of this committee. It's a privilege to appear before you today. I want to thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their trust and support in nominating me to serve as ambassador to the People's Republic of Bangladesh. I'm honored by their confidence in me. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to recognize my wife, Amy, my steadfast partner over these past 30 years. I would not be here today without her continual support. We have two amazing sons together, Karsten, who's doing a PhD in German at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Cameron, who's doing a PhD in economics at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. The three of them have been my home as we have served the American people around the world. My recent positions have taught me that there is no corner of the globe whose partnership is more critical to U.S. strategic interests than the Indo-Pacific, and that we have not yet reached the full potential of this partnership. A democratic, stable, and prosperous Bangladesh will benefit the entire region 
and if confirmed, I will advance policies that will enhance our relationship with Bangladesh and promote a free, open, interconnected, resilient, and secure region. The United States has been a reliable friend and partner with Bangladesh for nearly five decades. We work together on economic development, peacekeeping, tackling the climate crisis, public health, and finding durable solutions to the Rohingya refugee crisis. Our two nations also share a commitment to democratic values. Our people-to-people -people ties continue to grow and help deepen our cooperation. If confirmed, I will be a tireless advocate for America's interests and values as we seek to broaden our partnership with Bangladesh. Our economic ties are strong and growing, demonstrated by the establishment of the U.S.-Bangladesh Business Council earlier this year. U.S. private sector investment supports Bangladesh's economic development while bringing U.S. technologies and know-how and promoting transparency, inclusion, and market-based reforms. Bangladesh has also long played a leadership role in pressing for solutions to the climate crisis. And if confirmed, I will advocate for policies that promote our partnership on environmental and climate issues. The United States is also committed to helping Bangladesh recover from the global pandemic. Through COVAX, the United States has donated 11.5 million vaccine doses to Bangladesh to date and is committed to providing additional donations in the coming months. But for the people of Bangladesh to realize their full potential, they must also be free to express themselves. The Department of State is long committed to promoting the free operation of media, civil society organizations, workers, and members of the opposition political parties in Bangladesh without fear of retribution or harm. If confirmed, I intend to continue the department's work to bolster full democratic participation in advance of the 2023 national elections and to urge the government to protect and defend human rights. The United States appreciates the generosity of Bangladesh for hosting nearly 1 million Rohingya refugees who have fled violence in Burma. The United States has supported Bangladesh and is the largest international donor in the humanitarian assistance response. If confirmed, I will continue the U.S. government's work to promote the voluntary, safe, dignified return of Rohingya refugees in coordination with Bangladesh and the international community. I will also advocate for the protection of the human rights of all Rohingya, wherever they may be. The United States cooperates closely with Bangladesh on counterterrorism. Bangladesh is one of the largest recipients globally of U.S. counterterrorism assistance. If confirmed, I will continue to strengthen this partnership while emphasizing the respect for rule of law and human rights. The United States also recognizes Bangladesh's notable contributions to regional security and its active role in U.N. peacekeeping operations. In 2022, the United States and Bangladesh will celebrate 50 years of diplomatic relations. It is an honor to be nominated at this pivotal point in our relationship and during Bangladesh's Golden Jubilee anniversary year. If confirmed, I look forward to the opportunity to work with this committee and other members of Congress to support the United States' interests in Bangladesh and the Indo-Pacific region at large. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I look forward to hearing your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you, um, Mr. Haas. And next, we're going to turn to Ms. Chung. Ms. Chung?
Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Rounds, members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be U.S. Ambassador to Sri Lanka. I'm grateful for the confidence President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me by nominating me for this assignment. As a first-generation immigrant from South Korea, I am proud that my parents instilled in me the values of hard work, optimism, love of country, a Christian faith, and the belief that America is a country of opportunity and force for good. I am thankful for the sacrifices they made for my sister and me and their unconditional love. I'm also thankful to my husband, Jose Colazzo, whose unwavering support and patience had been a strong foundation for our family, including our eight-year-old son, Mateo, who still doesn't understand exactly what mom does at work, but is proud of me anyways. During my 25-year career in the Foreign Service, I have served in Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East, advocating for U.S. interests, building strategic partnerships, and engaging a diverse range of stakeholders to promote democratic values and private sector-led economic growth. My experience in China, Japan, and Southeast Asia have provided me a unique insight into the importance of American leadership to ensuring a free, open, and resilient Indo-Pacific region. As the Acting Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, I'm proud to have led policies that supported democratic partners and strengthened their ability to counter authoritarian oppression, corruption, and terrorism. Now, I believe that as policy leaders, we also have a responsibility to advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in our workforce, something I have actively promoted since joining the Foreign Service as part of the very first cohort of the Pickering Fellowship supported by Congress. Mr. Chairman, Sri Lanka is Asia's oldest democracy and survived the tragedy of a civil war that resulted in unimaginable violence and continued ethnic and religious divisions. If confirmed, I am committed to speaking clearly and consistently in support of democratic values, human rights, and a strong civil society that are essential to democracies and central to our foreign policy approach. We must also be strong partners in encouraging justice accountability and reconciliation so that all Sri Lankans can share in the benefits of peace, security, and prosperity. Sri Lanka is positioned in a strategic location at the heart of the Indian Ocean and its critical ports with access to global maritime lanes and trading routes play a pivotal role in a free and open Indo-Pacific and beyond. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly to advocate for quality infrastructure and investment based on transparency, respect for international law, good governance, sustainable environmental and labor standards. We must also support U.S. companies doing business in Sri Lanka and utilize the tools we have with the Development Finance Corporation and the Export-Import Bank to provide alternatives to coercive lending and opaque contracts. I believe our most important assets are American innovation, people-to-people -people exchanges and education. If confirmed, I pledge to expanding and seeking creative ways to build upon these networks and connections. We must also continue to engage the many voices of the Sri Lankan diaspora in the United States who make valuable contributions in our bilateral relationship. Mr. Chairman, Sri Lanka offers many challenges and opportunities for the United States to grow our relationship. I will make every effort to advance our values and shared interests so that Sri Lanka meets its full potential to be a vital partner in the Indo-Pacific. 
Thank you again for allowing me to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you, uh, Ms. Chung. Thank you for that uh, testimony and focusing on all aspects of our relationship uh, with Sri Lanka and stressing the importance of the people-to-people -people, uh, relationships. Um, I, I have a strong interest uh, in all the countries uh, to which uh, you've been appointed, including Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. Um, but as I chair the Africa Subcommittee, I'm going to focus my questions um, on, on those uh, nominations. Uh, Ambassador Mahoney, uh, you mentioned in your testimony the various armed groups uh, that control different regions of the Central African uh, Republic, uh, contributing to a very fragmented and, and war-torn landscape. Um, among those are the Russian-supported uh, forces, the mercenaries uh, that continue to commit human rights uh, abuses that operate uh, independently under, com under a complicit host government. Um, how, how should the United States address the increasing presence of these Russian-sponsored and supported forces uh, and the acute threat to stability that they represent, uh, particularly as UN peacekeeping, uh, the UN peacekeeping mission there struggles to maintain security in the capital and throughout the country? Senator, thank you for your question. And before I respond, I'd just like to say that I had the privilege to serve two tours in Sri Lanka and walked by the picture of your father as ambassador many times a day. So thank you for his service and thank you for your service as a member of a foreign service family. Uh, Senator, thank you. You put your finger on one of the, among an array of challenges, one of the most acute right now, the, the influence of foreign malign actors who are further destabilizing the situation in the Central African Republic and not contributing to the long-term peace and stability that is so desperately needed. And if I am confirmed as ambassador, I would work with our partners on the ground in, uh, in Bangui and with other regional actors uh, like the AU and uh, the economic uh, community of Central African states to really highlight the, the risk of increased international isolation and opprobrium and further destabilization, as I said, further instability that the government of the Central African Republic is courting in pursuing this relationship with an actor that has been sanctioned for very good reasons by our government and others, and that does not have the long-term interests of the Central African Republic and its people at heart, is not operating with that as a basic principle. If I am confirmed, I would work to highlight the impact of our existing sanctions on these Russian-supported mercenaries and do whatever I can with other agencies to enforce those sanctions. I would also highlight and raise awareness among Central Africans about the serious human rights violations that these Russian-supported mercenaries have committed, as you very rightly uh, pointed out, at the who are there at the invitation of the Central African Republic government who are committing these violations. And I was encouraged to see that the Commission of Inquiry report that the government recently released on uh, serious human rights violations and abuses did mention the culpability of Russian, quote unquote, instructors. I would also work, if confirmed, 
to counter the disinformation and propaganda campaigns that are really undermining so much of the good work that's being done in the Central African Republic to, to support the people there. And we have some good programs right now on the ground that are working to train journalists to independently evaluate sources of news and to have a very, very critical uh, assessment of the stories and narratives being presented to them. I would work to expand uh, those efforts because I think they're very, very important and can bear a lot of fruit in the long term. Um, I would also work, as you said, to increase those people-to-people -people exchanges that are so important. I was so glad to hear you talk about that because for me, those are pure gold. For very, very little money, we make those very real connections at a, at a very uh, important level with the future leaders of the country. And I know that the pandemic has probably affected our ability to continue those, but if confirmed and pandemic conditions permit, I really want to step them up because they really are so, so very, very productive and fruitful. I would work with our UN mission uh, to also call out the irresponsible behavior of these mercenaries in New York, and they've been doing a very, very robust job of that. And finally, I would work to with our partners on the ground, including MINUSCA and uh, the EU, to see what responsible alternatives, security alternatives, we might be able to propose. I'd explore that avenue um, so that the government doesn't feel that it must turn to these uh, very responsible and non-accountable actors. And um, I think the mandate of renewal for MINUSCA, which is coming up next month, offers a really uh, prime opportunity for that. Thank you. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for your prior service, including in Sri Lanka and for mentioning my dad. It's good to see you again. Um, let me turn it over now to Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I most certainly appreciated the answer uh, with regard to the, to the influence there. Uh, I'm going to turn to uh, Ambassador Vrooman uh, to begin with. It's good to see you again, sir, and thank you for your previous service. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about about Mozambique and specifically combating the Islamic State. Mozambique is among the top priorities here for the United States with regard to our policies in Mozambique. What is driving the extremist insurgency in Mozambique? And do you feel the U.S. is adequately engaged given the various threats and challenges the uh, situation in Mozambique poses to the region? Thank you very much, uh, Senator Rounds. Good to see you as well. And, and having seen you uh, on the continent in, in recent years, it's great to see you even virtually at this time. It's a very pertinent question. And I think that uh, obviously the situation in Cabo Delgado, um, we're, we've re reached, I think, a, an inflection point in uh, the arrival of forces from SADC and from allies such as Rwanda that have enabled the government of Rose Mozambique uh, to deal a military blow to and to recapture some of the cities, towns, and ports that um, ISIS Mozambique had taken over during that four-year period that I mentioned in my testimony. Now, what I think all of these combined forces are finding is uh, a large swath of destruction. Police stations, health centers, and other government infrastructure has been destroyed. There's, there have been reports as well that mines have been laid that raises some questions about um, returning to and getting the, the, the displaced people back to their homes, villages, so that they can resume their livelihoods. So really, in terms of our approach right now, it isn't 
uh, it's really where we come in in some ways as a major, the, the major um, economic and humanitarian partner of the government of Mozambique to help them in that reconstruction process. It'll be a challenge. Um, the ISIS forces have, uh, some of them have been, you know, um, dealt a military blow, but some of them will come back if there isn't a response that's able to hold the towns, villages, and ports that have been liberated of um, the ISIS, ISIS Mozambique forces. So it is at this stage, I think, that the U.S. engagement is very important. And uh, most of our assistance to date has been humanitarian in nature or to be, uh, to be directed in, in crisis response. We will now need to work on these more lasting development challenges having to do with job creation, um, having to do with rebuilding so that people have the, have the means with which to uh, return to their homes. And I think that will be, that will help uh, uh, moving forward, giving people a view and a stake in their future and more confidence in the security uh, that has that has returned, at least for now, to northern Mozambique. Thank you, sir. Mr. Haas, um, you spent most of your career as an economic officer. Bangladesh is a relatively poor nation of increasing strategic importance that is facing critical political and demographic changes. What are the biggest factors limiting Bangladesh's economic growth and what can the United States do to help? Also, what is your assessment of Bangladesh's anti-corruption efforts and what are we gonna to do to promote financial transparency? Thank you very much, Senator, for that question. Um, indeed, um, there are a lot of economic challenges in Bangladesh. I think they're ranking on the World Bank's ease of, business do, um, ease of doing business study is a pretty fair characterization of the problems that exist there. Um, and as you mentioned, one of those problems is the issue of corruption, where also Bangladesh has a lot to do. Um, if confirmed, I will continue to promote the improvement of the economic environment there, um, the rule of law to make it easier for U.S. companies to compete there. And I will also work very closely with American companies who are seeking to do business there to ensure that they are treated fairly and that they are not discriminated against and to level the playing field so that they can compete and do business. Thank you. Thank you. And Ms. Chung, um, with opposition to a renegotiated status of forces agreement and the cancellation of a Millennium Challenge Corporation compact worth nearly $500 million, it seems that our relationship with Sri Lanka is facing some headwinds at the moment. Do you agree? And if so, how can we turn it around? Thank you for that question. I think there are certainly challenges in the relationship as we've seen with the MCC project and various other cooperation. I think what's needed more than ever is for us to explain why the US remains a strong partner. And in terms of issues like infrastructure and investment to show the benefits of quality, high quality, good governance, transparent infrastructure projects and why that benefits directly the people of Sri Lanka. I think we can go a long way at doing more public diplomacy and engaging with all stakeholders on the ground beyond the government, with civil society, with journalists, and uh, those who feel affected by such projects in the future. In addition, I think we can look for more opportunities with the Development Finance Corporation that already has invested more than $200 million in small and medium enterprise lending, especially for female-owned businesses. 
So I think through uh, initiatives like these, we can reach out more directly to the Sri Lankan people, develop constructive relationships with the government, and expand our relationship in many ways. Thank you. And once again, thank you all for your service. Mr. Chairman, I'll turn it back to you. Well, well, thank you, uh, Senator Rounds. And let me turn it over now to Senator Haggerty. That in honor of, let's see, can you, can you hear me now? Yes. Good now, okay. I just wanted to thank you for your leadership uh, of this uh, hearing, Senator Von Holland. And in honor of your father's service as our ambassador to Sri Lanka, I'd like to turn my attention now to our candidate uh, for the ambassador to Sri Lanka. Um, Julie, it's good to see you again. I want to thank you for your service on the Japan desk when I served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan. Uh, you and I have had opportunities to talk about this region on a number of occasions. I'd like to point uh, my attention, though, to something I'm very concerned about, and that's China's use of debt trap diplomacy to secure interest in two very strategic ports in Sri Lanka. Uh, back in 2017, Sri Lanka formally handed over the strategic port of Hambantota to China on a 99-year lease after Sri Lanka struggled to pay its uh, debt owed to Chinese firms. This transfer gave China control of territory just a few hundred miles away from India, and it gave China a strategic foothold along a critical sea, commercial, and, and military sea lane. China also has a stake in another port in Sri Lanka, at the Colombo Port City, where Chinese submarines actually docked at the harbor when Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was visiting there. China now possesses the largest Navy in the world. And these strategic ports that they're amassing will allow China to project power across the Indo-Pacific region. The United States must take the lead in pushing back against China, or else the entire Indo-Pacific region is in danger of falling under the greater influence of the Chinese Communist Party. So my first question for you is, it confirmed, Julie, what steps would you take to deepen U.S. relations with Sri Lanka's leadership and work with partners such as India to ensure that Sri Lanka's relationship with China doesn't contribute to further intensified comp competition in the Indian Ocean? Thank you for that question. You're exactly right about the influence and the concerns we have about the PRC's investment, the extent uh, and the types of infrastructure investment they are making in Sri Lanka. I think every country wants options. No country wants to be cornered into making one decision based on one country's deliverance of and their promises. So if confirmed, I pledge to working again to work with all the tools we have in the U.S. government. We have the U.S. Trade and Development Agency. We have the DFC to provide alternatives. And that's what's essential. Unlike other countries, some other countries that direct foreign investment and tell their countries, uh, companies where to invest. U.S. companies go where they based on risk and benefits assessments. So in order to encourage that investment, we have to work with the government, with their private sector, with their civil society to build the foundations of strong governance, anti-corruption, and, 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 and strong transparency standards. And I believe that what you pointed out about India is essential. We can't do this alone, and we shouldn't do this alone. The United States is not the only country who cares about robust international standards. We've seen this recently with a number of countries and stakeholders coming together around the world to promote the Blue Dot Network, 
which creates international standards for quality infrastructure. So working with multilateral uh, partners, working with India, working with Japan, as we have worked before, uh, Senator, um, to work with those like-minded countries in co-financing projects and raising these issues of international standards and transparency together will be essential. I agree with you very much, Ms. Chung, and I think that you're highlighting the Blue Dot Network uh, certainly brings back a point close to my heart because I signed on behalf of the United States when we brought Australia and Japan together uh, with their finance development networks uh, along with our own. So I think that holds great potential. We have a lot more work to do there, and I appreciate your keeping that in mind as you move forward. Back to Sri Lanka, um, while they're staving off a major, major financial crisis right now, and it's Wallowing in debt, China has refused to bail Sri Lanka out. But helping Sri Lanka also presents other actors with moral hazard. So my next question is, what can and should the United States do, including with multilateral agencies such as the IMF, and with partner countries such as Quad members to help Sri Lanka clean up its public finances? And how do we do so without contributing to further unsustainable debt burden on Sri Lanka? Thank you for that. Thank you for that question, Senator. Uh, yes, the Sri Lankan's debt to GDP ratio is over 100%, and if, of its external debt, 15% is owed to the PRC. Now, 44% of its debt is owed to commercial banks as well. So this is a broader uh, problem than just owing debt to China. They also owe the Asian Development Bank, India, the World Bank, uh, Japan, and commercial banks as well. So I think in order to get into that healthy financial macroeconomic situation, we should work uh, to continue to encourage and urge the Sri Lankans to go to the IMF uh, to consider steps for debt restructuring to make yes. the structural reforms needed in the country. Uh, we certainly have had past programs in the country working with our treasury colleagues to promote that uh, technical assistance and the capacity building so that they can build that strong financial uh, ecosystem. And so we need to just continue to stay on that and our role in the IMF, our role in international organizations and banks will certainly play a key role in encouraging that message continuously to Sri Lanka. Yeah, I think Sri Lanka is a prime candidate for what you describe and I appreciate your attention to that because getting their financial house in order is gonna be a key to, to making certain that the strategic posture remains as, as we all need to see it in that region. Thank you very much and congratulations on your nomination. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Haggerty, and I, I appreciate that line of questioning as well uh, with respect to Sri Lanka and look forward to working with you and uh, Ms. Chung if uh, confirmed on, on those issues. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, to, to all our nominees, uh, we have a vote on in the Senate, which is why uh, Senator Rounds uh, departed uh, momentarily. And when he returns, I'm going to go vote. But uh, let me thank our entire uh, first panel here, unless we have any other senators um, waiting in the Zoom wings here. Um, I just want to, again, congratulate all of you on your nominations. Thank you for your uh, service, and I, I look forward to supporting you, your nominations, and hopefully we'll uh, be able to get them through the Senate um, in, an, in, in a way that gets you to post as soon as possible. Thank you all.
We're going to now begin our second uh, panel of uh, distinguished nominees. Um, I indicated earlier the countries uh, to which they've been nominated as ambassador, and now I'm also going to provide a little bit more about their backgrounds uh, and experience, uh, starting with uh, Mr. Brian Shukan, uh, who's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service uh, and has been the chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum since 2019. And I want to thank uh, Mr. Shukan uh, for his leadership there and for um, working with Senator Coons and I uh, during our visit uh, to Sudan a little earlier uh, this year. And we appreciated your insights um, and working to make that a, a successful uh, trip. Um, prior to Mr. Shukan's uh, service uh, in Sudan, he was a director of the Office of Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan. Uh, he's also served as Deputy Chief of Mission uh, in Port-au-Prince and Consul General in Casablanca and Deputy Political Counselor at the U.S. Uh, Embassy in Baghdad. Mr. Shukan is the recipient of numerous awards, including the James Forrestal Award for Excellence in Strategy and Force Planning from the U.S. Naval War College. He received his B.A. Uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a J.D. from Washington University in St. Louis and an MA from the Naval War College. Welcome. Uh, we also have with us uh, Ms. Elizabeth Fitzsimmons, uh, who's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as the Acting Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of African Affairs. Previously, she served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Central Africa and Public Diplomacy and as Acting Deputy Spokesperson for the United States Department of State and also as a senior advisor at the Foreign Service Institute. In addition, she's held numerous posts across the State Department and around the world in her 26-year-long career, including posts in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Cambodia, India, and Bulgaria. She is a recipient of a Senior Foreign Service Performance Award and a Superior Honor Award, and she holds a BA from the University of Virginia and a certificate from the International Division of Waseda University in Tokyo. Uh, welcome, Ms. Fitzsimmons. Uh, next, we have uh, Ambassador David Gilmore, uh, who's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as Charge d'Affaires in Chad. He's also served as Ambassador to the Togolese Republic. Previously, Ambassador Gilmore held posts as Deputy Chief of Mission in Malawi, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Central Africa in the State Department's Bureau of African Affairs and Director of East African Affairs, and as a Director of Public Diplomacy for Africa. His other assignments uh, overseas include positions in Australia, Costa Rica, and Panama. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Partnership Excellence Award from the Secretary of State's Office of Global Partnerships, and he received his BA from Saginaw Valley State University in Michigan and his MA from the University of Texas at Austin. I again want to thank all of our uh, nominees uh, who are here. I don't know if Senator Rounds uh, has had a chance to return yet. Uh, when he does, uh, he may also want to provide a welcome, a few welcoming remarks. But uh, in the interest of time, let us now uh, proceed uh, in the order uh, that I introduced um, 
uh, everybody, uh, beginning with Mr. Shukan. Mr. Shukan. Mr. Chairman, uh, ranking member, distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to be ambassador to the Republic of Benin. I appreciate the confidence that the President and Secretary Blinken have shown in me, and I thank you for the opportunity to testify. I'd also like to recognize my family watching online, my wife Claire for her love and support during the last 30 years and throughout our foreign service journey, my daughter Abigail, who's serving in the Department of Homeland Security, and my daughter Leah, who's a graduate student in Boston. It's been a privilege to serve the US as a foreign service officer for the past 26 years, beginning at our embassy in Benin, and for the past two years as chief of mission in Sudan, as we supported the Sudanese people's aspirations for a democratic and prosperous future. And I appreciate your remarks, uh, Senator Van Hollen, uh, uh, regarding your, your visit and all the support that, that you and Senator Coons and your colleagues have shown uh, to us as we've worked here in Khartoum. Uh, Benin has been a strong example of peace, stability, and tolerance. Uh, Benin is a solid partner on shared goals of economic prosperity, peace, and security. If confirmed, I look forward to working with Congress to promote democratic governance and human rights, support a prosperous and healthy society with closer trade and people-to-people -people ties with the United States, and strengthen regional security to address global threats such as violent extremism and transnational crime. I'd like to briefly highlight a few priorities, starting with democracy and human rights. And personally, uh, I'll never forget my experience in 1996, seeing Beninese citizens standing patiently in long lines to vote in Benin's second democratic election and witnessing a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, for nearly three decades, Benin was a model of multi-party democracy in West Africa. It adopted a democratic constitution in 1990 and has held six consecutive presidential elections with peaceful transitions. We've recently seen undue restrictions on freedoms of expression and peaceful, peaceful assembly, arrests of opposition members and laws undermining electoral competitiveness. These developments contribute to our concern about anti-democratic trends in Benin. If confirmed, I will support and encourage Benin to resume the positive role it had in promoting peaceful democratic governance, rule of law, and human rights. A second priority is developing a prosperous and healthy society with closer trade links to the US. Benin remains one of the world's least developed countries. One third of its population lives in poverty and malnutrition has stunted the growth of a, one, of a third of Benin's children under five. If confirmed, I'll work with the embassy team, Congress, and our Beninese partners to promote healthier and more prosperous future with growing trade and investment. In 2020, the US provided $28.2 million in assistance to foster a healthier society in Benin by strengthening health services. The US is also working to improve human rights and strengthen civil society. A five-year Millennium Challenge Corporation compact valued at $391 million entered into force in 2017. This compact is strengthening Benin's electric se sector, attracting private investment, and removing a major impediment to economic growth. The U.S. has invested in food assistance, improving child literacy, and increasing class attendance. And USAID maintains programs to build regional and global trade and attractive investment. 
If confirmed, I will guide these and other programs to partner with Benin for a more prosperous and peaceful future. I also want to highlight the importance of strengthening regional security and addressing global threats such as violent extremism and transnational crime. Benin is a strong partner for peace and security in West Africa and the Sahel and has prioritized improving its counterterrorism capacity and preventing violent extremism. Our assistance to Benin's security forces supports their participation in peacekeeping and regional security efforts and advances Benin's ability to secure its borders and in to interdict maritime and transnational crime. If confirmed, I will prioritize counterterrorism and countering violent extremism through security sector assistance, community building, and youth development. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you to advance U.S. interests in Benin and would be pleased to take any questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Shukan. Um, I, I see my colleague, Senator Rounds, uh, has returned. Um, Senator, I didn't know if you had any opening remarks that you wanted to provide uh, before I turn to the next uh, witness. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I do, but if it's all right with you, why don't we have all of them offer their opening statements? Um, I will do mine, and I know that I think you have to go vote as well. So this may be a good time for you to do your vote. And um, when uh, when we come back, when they're finished, I'll move right into my opening statements and then uh, we can proceed from there. I, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll just hand it off to you and uh, go vote and, and and then get come back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. See, thanks. Chairman Van Hollen, ranking member rounds and distinguished members of the committee. What a privilege it is for me to appear before you today as the nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to Togo. I want to thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for this opportunity. In fact, my very first chance to live outside the United States came from then Senator Biden, who in 1989 selected me as one of two Japan U.S. Senate scholars from Delaware and set me on the path that would lead to my diplomatic career. If confirmed, it will be the honor of a lifetime to lead our embassy to advance the interests of the United States and the American people in Togo. I'm thankful that I get to share this moment with my family and loved ones. Diplomacy is our family business. My husband, Richard Seipert, serves as a diplomatic security special agent at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, and my son-in-law, Grant Holyoke, is a first-tour foreign service officer at Embassy Beijing. I am so grateful for a lifetime of support from my wonderful husband, my children, Taylor, Morgan, Michaela, Tyson and Adam, my daughter-in-law, Laura, and my sons-in-law, Grant and Jake. My grandchildren, Molly, Harrison, and William are also watching, and I'm thrilled that my mom, Barbara Noseworthy, is as well, because she's visited our family at every one of our postings abroad. Throughout my 26 years in the Foreign Service, I've served across the globe and in a variety of posts in Washington, D.C. As Deputy Executive Secretary, I supported two Secretaries of State as they traveled hundreds of thousands of miles projecting American values and engaging with citizens and governments across the globe. As acting deputy spokesperson, I helped explain US policy to the world. And most recently, as the acting principal deputy assistant secretary for the Bureau of African Affairs, I led a fantastic team to build stronger, deeper relationships with the countries of Africa to make the continent safer, more secure, more prosperous and more democratic. I am a dedicated and engaged mentor to dozens of colleagues, and I am committed to making the Foreign Service a more diverse, 
resilient and effective organization. I welcome the opportunity to continue this work if confirmed as the US ambassador to Togo. The United States established diplomatic relations with Togo in 1960. Since then, the US and Togo have built a strong relationship based on shared goals, advancing peace and security, promoting trade and economic growth, strengthening government and democratic institutions, and supporting opportunity for all Togolese citizens. Togo is a key regional partner to maintenance of peace and security in West Africa. Togo plays an active role in mediating regional disputes, most recently in Guinea. The government works alongside civil society, regional partners, and our embassy in Lome to strengthen national resilience to violent extremism. Togo currently has more than 1,300 troops and gendarmes in UN missions, making it the 16th largest national contributor. If confirmed, I will continue to foster security cooperation between our two countries to enhance the capability of Togolese security forces. The United States works closely with the government of Togo to improve the investment climate in order to attract US companies to take advantage of Togo's geographic advantages as a logistics hub with the Gulf of Guinea's deepest deep water port, as well as a regional air transport hub. Before the pandemic, Togo enjoyed a period of steady economic expansion fueled by international investment and a concerted effort to modernize the country's commercial infrastructure. The Togolese government calls the port of Lome the lungs of the economy and promotes Togo as the gateway to West Africa. As the world recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic, it is important that the United States support partners like Togo to return to a path of economic success by promoting trade and investment opportunities for the US private sector. While Togo aspires to become a regional economic and security leader, these goals cannot be achieved without strengthening Togo's democratic institutions. Recent Togolese government restrictions on the media, politically motivated arrests, limitations on political gatherings and suspensions of press outlets raise concern. If confirmed, my embassy team and I will work with the government of Togo, political parties, civil society organizations, and other diplomatic missions to promote political reforms, reinforce democratic institutions, and strengthen electoral institutions and processes to promote free and fair elections. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and distinguished members of the committee for this opportunity. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you and my colleagues across the US government to strengthen our relationship with Togo. I welcome any questions you may have, and I hope you and your colleagues will visit Togo to witness the growing bilateral partnership firsthand. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Fitzsimmons. Ambassador Gilmore, please proceed. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Rounds, and members of the committee uh, for the opportunity to testify today. Uh, it's a great honor to appear before you as the nominee to be the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of Equatorial Guinea. Uh, and I'm grateful for the confidence that President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me uh, with this nomination. And if confirmed, I'll do my best to uphold this trust and advance U.S. national interests and priorities. Uh, I'd like to mention a couple of uh, important people without whom I wouldn't be here today. Uh, the first is my wife, Judith Martin, uh, who spent a lifetime in the Foreign Service, uh, first with her parents. Uh, her father, S. Douglas Martin, was a career State Department officer. Uh, and later as my cherished partner, as we traveled the world together and raised our three children, uh, during service in 10 overseas posts uh, and in Washington uh, in the 35 years of my Foreign Service career. 
Uh, Judith is a civil service employee at the State Department, uh, where she works in the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge my 93-year-old father, uh, John Gilmore. Uh, he worked for 34 years in local government, serving as the city manager in the small town where I grew up in Michigan. Everything I know about respect, integrity, and dedication to public service, I learned from my dad. Mr. Chairman, I believe my service as ambassador to Togo, as Chargé d'Affaires in Chad, uh, and in senior positions in the Bureau of African Affairs in Washington, as well as postings elsewhere in the world, have prepared me for this assignment. And if confirmed, I will work tirelessly to advance the foreign policy priorities of the United States, including to promote good governance and respect for human rights, to end COVID-19 and prevent the next pandemic, to improve the business environment for U.S. trade and investment, and to promote regional and maritime security. Now, since its independence, there have only been two presidents in Equatorial Guinea, and one of whom has ruled for over 40 years. Presidential term limits were established in 2011, but were not applied retroactively to President Obiang, who could remain in office until 2030. Though multi-party elections are technically allowed, the non-ruling political parties face legal restrictions, and opposition leaders have reportedly faced torture, harassment, intimidation, and politically motivated detention. And if confirmed, I will raise our concerns with Equatorial Guinea's leadership about human rights and the rule of law, and I will urge government leaders to enable true multi-party democracy and to allow the growth of civil society. I will stress that promoting transparency and ending corrupt practices are key to Equatorial Guinea's long-term growth and stability and critical to strengthening our commercial ties. The United States is Equatorial Guinea's largest trading partner, and the U.S. Embassy plays a critical role in promoting American companies' interests. And if confirmed, I will continue to work to improve the investment climate for U.S. companies in Equatorial Guinea. Maritime security uh, is Equatorial Guinea's primary security challenge. And since 2019, there have been multiple incidents of piracy and kidnapping in and around Equatorial Guinea's waters. That if left unchecked, could impact U.S. commercial interests. And if confirmed, I will promote bilateral, secu bilateral security cooperation and investment to protect those interests and regional stability. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, I understand that such cooperation must undergo stringent review to ensure that it does not come at the expense of promoting respect for human rights and does not inadvertently enable corruption. And if confirmed, no goal will be more important to me than protecting the lives, interests, and welfare of American citizens living and traveling in Equatorial Guinea. I promise to work closely with you and the members of this committee in this endeavor. So thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I'll be pleased to answer any questions. Thank you, Ambassador Gilmore. Um, I would expect that our chairman will be back shortly. And as I indicated earlier, we seem to have this in the afternoons where our votes are being cast. And so we try to tag team those votes. Um, let me just begin. I, as I said, for panel one, as career diplomats, much of your lives and those of your families have been spent far from home. You've 
made great sacrifices in the service to your country. Thank you and your families for your lifetimes of service. And let me just assure you, we understand your work is critical to maintaining and advancing America, America's influence in the world. Uh, Mr. Shukan, you served ably as chief of mission in the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum at a very critical and transitional period in the U.S.-Sudan relationship. If confirmed, you will serve as ambassador in a region that is rapidly changing for the worse. Um, Benin remains one of the world's poorest countries. Countering violent extremism is an emergent focus of U.S. engagement. And Benin's standing as a democratic leader in Africa has rapidly deteriorated under President uh, Talon Talon, whose government has arrested opposition leaders and implemented restrictive new electoral rules. Ms. Fitzsimmons, much of what I just said about Benin could also be said about its neighbor, Togo. On top of it all, and contributing to Togo's woes, is that one family has dominated Togo's politics for 60 years. I believe your recent tenure as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Central Africa and Public Diplomacy, and then as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Africa Bureau will be very useful if confirmed. Ambassador Gilmore, you are one of the most experienced U.S. ambassadors currently serving in Africa. Equatorial Guinea is a small oil and gas rich country of increasing strategic importance. It is notorious for its kleptocratic system of governance. Uh, President Obiang took office in 1979, making him one of the world's longest serving heads of state. Equatorial Guinea requires a perceptive and experienced ambassador to lead U.S. operations. Um, I am glad that you have been nominated for this post. I am delighted to meet all of you today, and I look forward to, you know, continuing to work with you, and I have most certainly appreciated the comments that you have shared with us today. And with that, I'm not sure if our chairman has returned or not yet. But um, if Senator Holland has not returned yet, I would be happy to begin the questioning um, at this time. And I'm just looking to see if he's actually come back yet or not. And I don't see him on the on the uh, list yet. So let me just turn right to the questions. And uh, I will uh, begin with uh, Mr. Shukan. Um, your experience in Khartoum as of the Charge d'Affaires will, will contrast in several ways to your new position. If confirmed as the U.S. Ambassador to Benin, you're going to be busy. Uh, Sudan has received significant attention from Washington since the democratic transition began in 2019 and has been a sustained priority across the Trump and Biden administrations. Benin, despite many challenges, will compete for attention with major economic partners in West Africa and the violent extremist threat in the Sahel. What lessons will you take from your time in Sudan to Benin, and what are you looking forward to that will be different? Well, thank you. Thank you, Senator Rounds. And, um, and let me first uh, express my appreciation for the comments that you made uh, about the Foreign Service families. And I'm glad that I've got mine joining me online uh, in this virtual hearing. Uh, for me, this has very much been a family affair from the very beginning. Um, I also share the concerns that you've expressed uh, concerning uh, both uh, the, the violent extremist threat 
and democratic backsliding. Um, I spent the last two years uh, here in Khartoum and uh, the two years prior to that working on Sudan from Washington. And uh, I've, uh, it, it's really been a privilege uh, and a challenge to, uh, to support uh, Sudan's efforts to, uh, to really get their democracy moving uh, to support this transition. And we've appreciated uh, all the help that we've received from, from members of Congress uh, on that. The, the Benin situation is, is different. Um, I had the, as I mentioned in my opening comments, I served in Benin in my first assignment. Um, it really was a formative experience for me to witness uh, a young democracy uh, and seeing uh, the, uh, the value that Beninese citizens placed on, um, on, on exercising their right to vote, on participating in a democratic process and seeing peaceful transitions of power. Uh, and uh, and it's, you know, it is certainly something of a disappointment to, uh, to see the backsliding that's taken place uh, since that time. Uh, we're also concerned about media, uh, restrictions on media freedom and uh, the, the, the fact that there are some political prisoners uh, in Benin at this time. So I think it's important that as a chief of mission, uh, we speak both uh, privately and publicly about democracy and human rights, about our values. It's important, if confirmed, that we uh, we encourage Benin to resume the leadership role that it that it had in the past. Um, I also think this is very much linked to the the uh, vulnerability uh, to violent extremist ideology in areas like northern Benin. Uh, People need to feel that they're being heard, uh, that their government is accountable. So I see a direct relationship between democracy and governance and security, as well as economic development. Uh, I think it's important to engage all uh, political groups, including the... Uh, the uh, and I think that uh, one of the lessons I've learned from here in Sudan, but also in my previous assignments, is the importance of having a whole of mission approach to these things. Uh, and uh, I think that means working with our team uh, to support these values. Uh, I know that public affairs and USAID are going to play a critical role, as well as the security assistance that we're providing uh, to the Beninese military and to the police. Uh, supporting civil society, youth, uh, even uh, engaging with local radio, all of these things are important. Uh, and uh, provide good fora to uh, to talk about our values and advance our interests. Uh, thank so, you. thank you. Thank you. And I, I I've had the opportunity to visit uh, Benin and Togo, and uh, Miss Fitzsimmons, like Benin, the U.S. mission in Togo is relatively small, and Togo commands significantly less attention from Washington than many of its close neighbors. If confirmed, how will you leverage your public diplomacy background? to garner more attention for Togo. Conversely, how will you use your public diplomacy background to engage with the Togolese people in new and different ways? Thank you so much for the question, Senator Rounds. I'm delighted at the idea that if confirmed, I will get to go lead the embassy team at Embassy Lome and think about creative ways that we can use public diplomacy programming 
particularly the Young African Leaders Initiative, which, as you know, is now a decade old, 750,000 strong across the subcontinent. And I think there are tremendous opportunities there to support young African leaders, both in Togo and network them more effectively with their like-minded colleagues and counterparts, not only in Benin, I think it's fortuitous that uh, Mr. Shukan and I are on the panel today. I think there are tremendous opportunities to work within the coastal West African subregion and across the entire African continent to make sure that young leaders, whether they are in the media, whether they are entrepreneurs, whether they are young educators, have opportunities to hear from, learn from, and teach each other. There's no question in my mind that an activist in Zimbabwe, for example, has much to teach a young Togolese activist. And I think one of the very effective ways that I would hope to work if confirmed as ambassador is to use my background as uh, someone with experience in exchanges to connect young Africans so that they can be force multipliers uh, in the many challenges that you have rightly pointed out. I think also it's critically important that we speak clearly when we are talking to the government, to President Four, that he understands that things like the Millennium, the current Millennium Challenge Threshold Program in Togo are wonderful opportunities to leverage the Togolese government's desire to be the gateway to West Africa. But there are very important benchmarks that will need to be met in democracy and governance for that program to move forward successfully and lead perhaps ultimately to a compact for Togo. So I would ensure that public and private messaging at the embassy, if confirmed, reinforced the US opportunities in the logistics and services sector in Togo if democratic governance space can be maintained and expanded. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And my time has expired, Mr. Chairman, so I will turn it back to you. I have not had the opportunity to ask Mr. Gilmore one question, but I'll leave it up to you if you want me to just proceed with it or if you'd like me to come back. Uh, sure. Do you want to go proceed? Uh, that'd be fine. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Gilmore, several top members of the Obiang administration and his family have been implicated in large-scale corruption and other financial crimes, especially tied to oil revenues. If confirmed, how will you balance multiple U.S. strategic interests, including combating this kind of corruption that could provide a gateway for malign foreign influence? Uh, well, thank you, Senator Rounds, and it's nice to see you uh, once again. Uh, I don't know if you recall, I hosted you when you came to Togo, uh, along with uh, Senator Inhofe, a uh, delegation. Yes. Uh, a, few, yes. a few weeks back, and, and thank you uh, again for your uh, very kind comments about the Foreign Service. Uh, corruption in, in economic, uh, Equatorial Guinea is certainly uh, one of the most important priorities uh, for the United States. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, certain senior figures uh, in, in the government there have been uh, implicated in, in corruption cases, uh, both in the United States and, and in uh, numerous countries. Uh, and and in, in fact, uh, just recently, there was a, a case settled uh, with the vice president and, and uh, some seized assets, uh, about $30 billion, uh, uh, have been negotiated and, and uh, a, a, a happy ending in the sense that uh, about $20 million of those uh, seized assets will be used to uh, purchase COVID vaccines uh, for the people of Equatorial Guinea. So uh, I, I think... Uh, if, if confirmed, I certainly would want to uh, uh, 
continue along our lines of, of uh, speaking out about uh, corruption uh, in the country. Um, and, and certainly uh, these kinds of cases, I think, uh, coordinating with our partners, uh, uh, the UK, the Europeans, uh, Brazil, South Africa, other uh, countries that have had these kinds of cases, it, it's very important to continue these, these efforts to highlight uh, official corruption uh, in the country. Uh, at the same time, I, there have been some signals from the government that they want to uh, address this problem. Uh, there is some new uh, legislation that's been passed in the country uh, that is uh, still pending, as I understand, uh, still pending uh, implementation. Uh, but uh, that, that's a positive signal. Uh, also, the, the country has uh, made uh, representations to rejoin the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which would bring some transparency and accountability to uh, the, the oil and gas and, and mining sectors in the country. So I think we have to uh, uh, take the government, uh, you know, take a step-by-step -step approach with this and, and kind of judge the political will of this government and, and see where it takes us and see uh, where we can uh, collaborate with them uh, to uh, reduce official corruption. Um, but, uh, you know, given the track record, as you mentioned, uh, of this government, uh, we have to proceed cautiously. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. And Mr. Chairman, thank you for your indulgence. Uh, th thank you, Senator and uh, Ms. Fitzsimmons. Thanks for mentioning the YALI program. Uh, Senator Rounds and I have been working together uh, to provide a, a regular authorization uh, for that program, as has Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass uh, in the House. And I, I'm pleased to report that just yesterday, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, passed out a, a five-year authorization. Um, so it, it will... It will now be codified, and we want to also expand it uh, to other areas. So thank you for mentioning that. Uh, Mr. Shukan, I want to take advantage of uh, this hearing really to, to ask, your, ask you some questions about uh, where you are now um, in Sudan. Because um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, and, and you know, and again, thank you for your, your good work there and for helping uh, Senator Coons and myself during our visit. Um, and we, we found it a very promising visit. Um, we recognize that uh, we're now two and a half years uh, since the fall of Bushir. Um, and we recognize it's a fragile process. Uh, I, I will say in recent days um, and weeks, um, it's looking even more fragile. Uh, and I, I wondered if you see mo the most recent events as just more bumps on the road along the way uh, to a, a, a stable and democratic Sudan, or is there something more serious uh, going on now that's direct, disrupting the path uh, to progress? Um, Senator, thank you for the question. Um, it's uh, it's it's a really it is a good question, and I, I think if you look at where we are, uh, it's two years into the Sudanese transition since they signed the um, the constitutional declaration in August 2019 and formed the transitional government. Uh, they've made some progress. They've made some pretty major progress in terms of signing a peace agreement and getting off of the state sponsors of terror list. Um, and also implementing economic reforms that have brought about 
some improvements uh, in the, on the macroeconomic side, like improved inflation, um, gotten rid of subsidies on key commodities. Uh, but they also there are some key benchmarks that have been um, that, that have not yet been met, and um, especially on the security side in terms of progress to integrate uh, the the various armed groups that that exist, including those represented by Juba peace agreement signatories, uh, the formation of a transitional legislative council, for example. And then I think despite the, the economic uh, positives, there uh, there's also a gap between uh, improvements on the macro side and the, the very, very serious difficulties that the ordinary Sudanese man and woman on the street are experiencing. So uh, yeah, I do, I do share your concern about the seriousness of the situation right now. We're uh, expecting to see some large demonstrations tomorrow. Uh, we're, what we expect is to see uh, a, a large contingent coming out in support of democracy, in support of civilian leadership. And that is what makes me optimistic, even though we are at a very fragile moment in Sudan. Um, you, uh, the, they really are going to have to uh, redouble their efforts, the, um, the various components of this transitional government to work together. There are divisions between civilians and military that got a lot of attention, but the divisions between the different civilian groups, between JPA signatories and uh, the forces for freedom and change, uh, those are very important. So there's, there's the, the prime minister did uh, form a committee a few days ago to address this current situation and includes, it includes the military, it includes the FFC, it includes these, uh, some of the JPA signatories. That's really positive, um, but I think we're gonna have to just keep pushing. Uh, we're doing it in public, we're doing it in private, uh, you know, that there's really no other path forward except working together and recommitting to implementation of those principles of freedom, peace and justice from that August 19, uh, 2019 uh, constitutional declaration. Well, I appreciate that I, because I, I think that, um, you know, we have a continuing important role to play in, in trying to support uh, the Sudanese people uh, in this um, move toward democracy. Uh, you know, we, all, we, we saw the failed coup um, recently. Um, Good news is that it failed, uh, but we've also seen some protests, as you know, uh, in support of the military, probably organized by Bashir forces. Um, so I, I am hoping to see a big outpouring of support for um, the continued march toward democracy um, in, in the days ahead. And, um, you know, I think Prime Minister Hamdak uh, continues to, to be a good leader uh, and but I, I, am, I am worried, as I know you are, about the developments uh, in the area. Just want to be clear that uh, we, we're all united in trying to make sure that we support this, uh, the success of this peaceful revolution. Um, I just have uh, one other question for Ambassador uh, Gilmore. Um, as you know, Equatorial Guinea um, is, is currently ruled by a regime characterized by Freedom House as, quote, highly authoritarian, unquote, um, and they further uh, state that it frequently detains the few opposition politicians in the country, cracks down on civil society groups, 
and censors journalists. Um, they also point out, quote, that the judiciary is under presidential control and security forces engage in torture and other violence with impunity. That's from Freedom House. So my, my question is this, and I, I say this as somebody who supports U.S. efforts to professionalize uh, militaries uh, around the world as a supporter, generally speaking, of the IMET program, uh, but also one who has seen that in certain cases, uh, those who were trained through the IMET program or other uh, U.S. efforts to professionalize militaries have participated uh, in coups and in anti-democratic uh, conduct. Uh, the Biden administration requested uh, $500,000 to support IMET uh, programs in Equatorial Guinea. Can you can you talk a little bit about that request and how you would balance that request with our concerns over the direction of the country and the issues I raised? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, um, and and thank you, uh, by the way, for your uh, comments about the YALI program. Uh, I happen to be uh, have the honor to be a part of the team that created the Mandela Washington Fellowship, which is the, the uh, centerpiece of the YALI program. So thank you for your uh, support for that and particularly for uh, continuing to finance it because it's a tremendously valuable tool and all of our all of our embassies uh, make great use of it. Uh, and, and and thank you for the question. Uh, it's uh, I, I think there's a certainly it's a uh, not a, a pretty picture in terms of governance and democracy in Equatorial Guinea and, and never has been. And as you mentioned, Freedom House, I think since the 1990s has has ranked uh, Equatorial Guinea as as not a free country. So uh, this is a, a challenging partner to work with. Uh, in in the last couple of years, there have been some efforts uh, by the government to uh, improve in certain areas, and notably in trafficking in persons. Uh, and you may be aware that they were able to uh, raise their ranking in the annual trafficking in persons survey to the tier two watch list. And that uh, then opened the possibility for some uh, collaboration with the United States in terms of, of foreign assistance programs which uh, I believe led to the, the IMET uh, request that, that you mentioned. Um, I, I think uh, what's certainly driving the IMET request and, and uh, a desire on the part of the United States to uh, in, uh, increase engagement with Hector Guinea on security issues uh, are the very serious security problems going on in the Gulf of Guinea. Uh, as I mentioned in my uh, opening statement, there, there have been, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, uh, many serious uh, uh, incidents of, of piracy and kidnapping. Um, and, and of course, we have, the United States has commercial interests in Equatorial Guinea, but also all around in, in the surrounding uh, countries as well, and most notably Nigeria, which is very, very close to Equatorial Guinea, uh, and Cameroon. Uh, so there are many Americans working in that region, uh, enormous investments in, in particularly oil and gas uh, and, and particularly offshore uh, platforms, which have been a target of many of these piracy attacks. So uh, we, the United States, we need Equatorial Guinea to be a responsible player uh, in terms of uh, security, maritime security in that region. And so uh, uh, I think the, uh, certainly our concept is uh, we want to work with them to 
begin to develop their capacity or increase their capacity to be able to respond to some of these attacks. Ekutoro Guinea actually even had uh, one pirate attack on its, uh, the, in the outskirts of the capital, there was an attack against a, a gas processing facility uh, in 2020. So it's, it's a very serious problem and, and something that we need to uh, work with them on. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we have these very serious concerns about human rights and, and, and governance and democracy that we've had for a very long time. So uh, my approach, uh, if confirmed, would be to go very cautiously uh, in this direction. Uh, we want to work with them, but uh, we need to see uh, what is their political will for reform. Uh, we need to be very cautious in, in terms of uh, not enabling corruption. Uh, there have been allegations of corruption in the military forces. Uh, of course, we have the Leahy vetting process, and, and if we are to work with uh, security force members there, uh, we need to uh, be very cautious uh, and very thorough in, in that process to know who we're dealing with. So uh, if, if confirmed, I would take a very cautious approach, a very measured approach, uh, and I think a very step-by-step -step approach uh, with any engagement we're going to do in terms of working with their security forces. And I think we need to go slowly, and I think we need to set benchmarks and uh, take a very cautious approach. Well, well, thank you, Mr. Ambassador. And um, right, we all will um, be working with you and, and rely on your uh, good judgment on how to best balance uh, uh, all these uh, factors. Um, uh, Senator Rounds, do you have any other um, questions, comments? Mr. Chairman, I do not. I've most certainly appreciated the, the uh, responses that we've received today. And, and once again, just the fact that we have these qualified individuals before us for these really challenging posts is appreciated. Thank you. Well, and let me add my uh, thanks and appreciation as well uh, to all of you for your, your current service um, in the Foreign Service um, and for um, you know, taking on the responsibilities uh, for which you've been nominated. And um, I certainly will support uh, your confirmation. We have a, a, a group here with deep expertise and uh, experience. So many thanks to all of you and to your families. Um, and with that, uh, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.